you know, Enrique and Pedro, they were younger than me, but they had already started and sold a business. So it was kind of like, yeah, but I guess while I was in high school and college, which, you know, I thought was what you do at that age, they were, you know, starting a payments business. The early part of a startup is challenging before, you know, you have real commercial activity for someone like myself. A lot of times we were just, you know, Pedro had a really big task to build everything. And there wasn't actually sometimes that much to do in the beginning. And that's hard if you're used to doing a lot. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fintech Leaders. Coming to you from New York City, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. I'm a co-founder of Gilgamesh Ventures, a venture capital fund that backs early-stage fintech entrepreneurs in the U.S., Canada, and Latin America. If you enjoyed this conversation, I invite you to leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your show so more people can learn about fintech leaders. In this episode, I sit down with Michael Tenenbaum, COO and employee number one at Brex, a $12 billion global spend platform for finance teams and founders to manage every aspect of global spend. Launched in 2017, Brex was last valued at $12 billion in January 2022 and has raised over a billion dollars from YC, Ribbit, Human Capital, GFC, DST, Dragoneer, TCB, and a very long list of fintech investors. In this episode, we discuss the implications of a high interest rate environment for tech and fintech, Michael's time at SoFi and what he learned about promoting talent from within, reflections from the early days at Brex and what he describes as his favorite role at the company, the future of Brex, bidding for SVB's credit card portfolio, and a lot more. Michael, welcome to FinTech Leaders. How are you doing today? Good. Thank you for having me. Excited to have this conversation. And I wanted to just off the bat, start talking about a topic I know you've been thinking a lot about. In fact, you wrote a whole post about this. And it's the fact that interest rates, not only have they gone up significantly, but the expectation is that they're going to stay higher. In fact, much higher than they've been for the last decade plus. So what are the implications for our industry of you know rates staying higher for longer? Right. I think there's sort of the implications for tech broadly, which generally are negative. And then there's the implications for fintech in particular, which are more nuanced and there's more positive. You know, tech, obviously I'm not the number one expert on this topic, but with higher interest rates, of course, there is more to invest in that's less risk. And so risky tech is less attractive. And, you know, that has been borne out in the market since rates started to turn, you know, early 22. I think from a fintech perspective, though, you know, fintech is broadly disrupting different business models across the financial services spectrum. And some of those businesses benefit from higher rates, typically and especially deposits, but also insurance. And both of those certain types of insurance more so than others. But both of those business models 
do better in a higher rate environment. And so for fintechs that either operate in those businesses or disrupt those businesses, there is more opportunity than there was in a purely zero interest rate environment that we were roughly in for the 10 years post the great financial crisis. Got it. How do you see your customers dealing with this today? Because you have a lot of data into what your customers are doing. Right. I think that from a, at least from a fintech perspective, what we see is certainly more, if you were to go back in time and to the era of, you know, early fintech, um, at least by, you know, our definition of it, which today we'll say post financial crisis fintech, there's always been specialty finance and versions of fintech, right? Capital One is itself a fintech. Schwab was a fintech at a time, right? And so, in that era, you'd only see people for the most part doing asset-based businesses or payments businesses. That would be the only place where people would look for innovation because broadly the market was looking for, there was deposit rich and it was the market was looking for assets to new creative types of assets that maybe banks, especially post-financial crisis, weren't able to originate. So that was kind of all the early fintech business models that you saw 2012 to maybe 15, of course, Lending Club, all the peer-to-peer lenders, all the personal loan lenders, SoFi, where I worked, most people were starting in that space with kind of an origination model. And then you had at the same time payments businesses that were emerging, Square, Stripe, those types of companies. And those companies were you know, really not interest rate sensitive. But on the deposit side, it was, or the insurance side, you haven't seen as many businesses really scale because there was just so much excess deposits that it was hard to make money doing that. But I think today you're going to see, and you are seeing a lot more companies start in that space and try and think about how to help people, either consumers or businesses navigate a higher interest rate environment. So I think there is more, more opportunity than that and more activity there than you would have seen certainly, you know, 10 years ago. Michael, you mentioned SoFi, of course, iconic company, very influential in our space in fintech. So yeah, let's hear about it. Yeah, you know, you spent several years there working with Mike Jagney. He's also been a guest, one of the most popular episodes out there. What did you learn there? Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, Mike, you know, I think first of all, I'm super grateful to Mike and Nito, both who I worked for while I was there. And I think, well, I learned when I went to SoFi, I had come from a private equity environment. So I remember my first day there, I think, or maybe my third day, there was this eating contest, which was kind of part of the culture there. It was a little bit, you know, it was like 2014. And there was an eating contest where people were eating those kind of gross Slim Jims, the ones that have the cheese. And I just remember thinking like, wow, this is, I guess this is what a startup is. But I, came, I thought that the most interesting thing about SoFi was there was so much, there was just this sea of personal loan companies and, you know, fintechs doing generally like peer-to-peer lending, that kind of world. And SoFi always was different, right? It had this great brand and it's still today, right? It's still worth a lot of money. It's doing well. I think it's a company that's touched a lot of people. You know, I meet people all the time who are like, look, I refinance my loans with SoFi. People feel really positive about it. I think it really captured the post-financial crisis zeitgeist, the rise of student debt, you know, millennials having different financial needs than 
different financial needs than their peers. I think one of the things that we used to talk about a lot and why kind of an unknown thing about SoFi is we got a lot of traction selling through HR departments. And that was because for so many young employees in this era, you know, student loans is a much bigger concern than would be something like health insurance where people are barely going to the doctor. And so that just kind of captures, I thought, think in an interesting way, the framing of SoFi, which is like there's this generation of people that's new and has different kind of needs and problems, both from student loan, but also housing. I was really involved with the mortgage business there, you know, and, and the needs were different and those weren't being addressed by the existing banking infrastructure. And I think the concept was always great brand and very differentiated products for that segment. And I thought it was always super clear what we were doing. And I thought that was so nice. You know, it was like so clear who our customer was and so clear what their needs were. And that I think is why SoFi has become such a big business. And that was definitely a lesson for me going to Brex too. Selling through HR departments was clearly ahead of your time because now- Everybody does that, right. Because <laughs> now companies can actually help contribute to 401ks. Now they can help contribute towards repaying a student loan. So Michael, let's talk about Brex. In contrast to SoFi, so Mike Cagney, I don't know if much older, but definitely someone who is older than you, someone you can kind of look at and see, okay, they have 20 more years of experience. He'd probably say 15, but I don't know. We'll say somewhere in there. <laughs> somewhere in there. But at, at Brex, it's a different story, right? You come in and you're working actually for two founders that are younger than you. Many people in the startup world have to deal with this and some cannot, right? But clearly it wasn't a problem for you. How did you deal with that? Yeah, I think that maybe coming from private equity into startup land helped frame that because one of the things that you realize when you do that is that the incremental year that you spent in private equity or finance or hedge funds, where you know, a lot of people in those worlds are somewhat interested in startups, but the incremental year, the marginal year is not that valuable, right? Because it doesn't totally translate. And so I knew that and I kind of was like, look, I may have a certain set of experiences. And there were something, right? Like do I did financial institutions, investment banking at JP Morgan. That was super valuable. I learned how, you know, how financial companies work. And so like, it's definitely worth something. But I think if you do five years or six or seven, you may not, that sixth or seventh year may not be that much more valuable in the operating world. And so, you know, Enrique and Pedro, they were younger than me, but they had already started and sold a business. So it was kind of like, yeah, but I guess while I was in high school and college, which, you know, I thought was what you do at that age, they were, you know, starting a payments business. And so I think I definitely deferred to their experience around company building, certainly around technology. I think where I, you know, brought the expertise was more around financial services, financial partners, how you kind of present to a bank, compliance, that that sort of world, you know, I had more experience in, but... So I never really thought about their age as much. Um, more tastes and preferences in the beginning would probably be more where there was friction rather than like age. So take us through that journey at Brex, because actually I spoke to Mickey Malka, one of Brex's in investors and great backers before. And I talked to him before this interview and he suggested I ask you, you know, you, you've had a lot of different roles at Brex. 
which one has been your favorite? Yeah, I think my favorite has probably been being responsible for risk. Ultimately, that's, you know, that risk is not, it's kind of one of those things that, you know, no startup is going to be like, this is the person responsible for risk. And if they do that, they're probably a problem early on. And also that person's probably a problem. So it kind of emerges based on, you know, what is the tolerance and the preferences of the founding team? It's sort of the same thing as brand in some way. I actually compare it to brand a lot at Brex internally because it's like, especially in a financial company, you're known for your risk management, even if you don't realize that. And so I think being kind of the person who decides generally how much risk we can take has been extremely valuable um, and there's no school for that, right? And you're sort of assessing the founders and their risk tolerance, right? Which I learned a bit from SoFi as well as, you know, your understanding of the market, your understanding of the regulatory landscape. And it really has to evolve as the company evolves. And it's just, it's a hard thing to do. And that's probably been my favorite because it also does involve saying no, which I do enjoy on occasion. So yeah, that part has been good. But it also it involves saying yes a lot more than it involves saying no, because like I tell everybody, right, if you spend your day risk managing all the risks away, you have nothing to manage because you don't have a company. You have to take risk. How about your first role at Brex? Tell us about, you know, you come in, I believe you're employee number one. What do you do as soon as you come in? Well, the first thing that I did, so I was technically the CFO. That was my title. But I felt dumb using it because what was I the chief of, right? Nothing. But, and we were in, working out of Enrique's house. And his house was in the Castro in San Francisco. And we were kind of like hanging around there for a couple of weeks until we got an office in Market Street. And my first job was really to do everything beside, you know, Enrique was focused on selling customers and partners. And Pedro was focused on coding. But I was doing everything else. So, you know, first thing I did was set up like payroll, our bank account, all that stuff. Nothing was, you know, I need to get paid. And we didn't have any of that really done properly. And that lasted for a bit. But actually, I'll tell you, the early part of a startup is challenging before, you know, you have real commercial activity for someone like myself. A lot of times we were just, you know, Pedro had a really big task to build everything. And there wasn't actually sometimes that much to do in the beginning. And that's hard. If you're used to doing a lot, like I, I was the chief revenue officer of SoFi, right? I was busy. And so I came to this company and it was like, there wasn't that much to do sometimes in the beginning until we started, you know, really commercial operations. And that was a challenge. I think that's not, you know, the early days of startups are really fun and they're pretty hard. So you initially started with a charge card for startups, but the company obviously has evolved a lot over time. Talk about your move towards expense management software. What drove this decision? So we always had a thesis, right? One of the initial theses of Brex was that card plus expense management in the same platform would be more powerful than separate, right? And that's definitely borne out in the market, the rise of Brex plus some of its competitors and just sort of the way that we see, call it mid-market and larger companies make decisions around financial services, it's well known and well understood that a card plus expense management is a better software and a better offering for employees and for accounting and all these things. So that 
that insight was known to us in 2017 when we started. It was one of the reasons why I came to Brex. I identified that would be relevant when Enrique kind of talked to me about Brex and I had managed the card at SoFi. So I knew that was clearly an unlock. Just, you know, the data alone from the card already being pre-populated on the transaction was more powerful than waiting for an employee to tell us what they did, right? So that always was part of the insight into Brex. I think what changed more recently was companies that as they get larger, the way that they buy software and expense management is really software, right? The way that they buy that changes materially. And I watched it happen with my own finance team, right? People at this point, they kind of, if you want to buy something at a company, typically over 500 employees, you can't just do that, right? Or you'll get fired. Whereas in a hundred person company, there were people all the time going around me saying like, oh, Michael, well, no, just like go do it and ask for forgiveness, right? And that's sort of like accepted, but that's definitely not accepted today. And so there's like a whole procurement department, there's a legal contract review, and there's data privacy review, right? We're operating multiple geographies. There's implementation, you know, just like roll out and say, hey, everybody, we're using Rex now, right? So like that whole enterprise process is something that Brex had to decide it wanted to do. And we wanted to compete for those deals, you know, with Concur. And that's a very different motion than what Brex had been doing previously. And that is sort of the change that happened in the last couple of years. I guess you're always evolving. When you think of the next steps, what comes to mind? Well, like what is top of mind for you? And, you know, maybe we got a bit of a hint back earlier this year when actually Brex was in part of the one of the bidders for SVB. So is that kind of one of the direction you guys want to take, become a full bank? Actually, no. I think that one of our values has always been dream big. It's probably one of the more unique values of Brex. I think a lot of companies have values that are roughly similar, which I think makes sense because there's a certain set of things that you know work to make companies successful. But dream big is probably not a value that every company has. And that's because... You know, since the beginning, Brex has wanted to be big, has idolized being a big company, has wanted to be a big, important financial company that people rely on. I think in some ways that was probably reflected in why I was hired as the first employee. Very unusual story, right? Most people, most founders don't look for, you know, a number two to them person that early, want to pay that kind of price. You know, it's just not common. And I think it's because they thought Brex was going to work and they wanted that skill set. And so dream so for us when SVB collapsed unfortunately we were looking at more the card portfolio we didn't bid on the entire the entire business just cuz it's you know banking represents a huge set of regulatory overhang that we probably you know that we aren't prepared to endure at this moment but we were definitely interested in taking over those card customers and our thought was perhaps the bank is going to get split up and the government would you know recognize how much we did for the community during the crisis and maybe award us that or off, you know, we were going to pay. But, you know, obviously one bidder ended up with the whole portfolio. I guess expanding through acquisition is nothing new for Brex, right? You've actually been acquisitive over the life of the company, more so than most startups probably. What have you learned through M&A? You know, I think your company is always going to reflect in some ways the skills of the executive team, right? So I think with Brex, 
we had a stronger finance department because we hired a CFO early, right? Which is not typical. And so we probably were, and we had Corp Dev. We, you know, I know you know Mark Aroni, for example. We had him relatively early as well. And so we naturally were looking at more things and kind of exposed to more of those opportunities because we had that function. And I think that, you know, that, that speak to me, the lesson there is like, you know, your org structure and who's reporting to who, you know, it doesn't matter from a like, oh, do I report to the CEO, that kind of thing. But I'm more saying that who the person, ultimately the CEO, but also every leader, including the finance leader, chooses to have reporting to them, what functions, you know, that's going to naturally gain more mindshare in a world of limited time. And so we had Corp Dev, and so that was getting mindshare. So we just saw more opportunities as an executive team than probably your average company. I think another lesson I've learned just about Corp Dev in general, though, which I think is important, is Corp Dev doesn't have to just be about M&A. It can also be sort of strategy competitive landscape. You know, being from a finance background, I naturally think finance people do a lot of things well. And so I think from a competitive land, landscape overview perspective, because you know VCs have so much information, if you're engaging with that community, you can learn a lot about the competitive landscape. And that's been very valuable for Brex, in addition to the M&A. A couple of weeks ago, I was in Brazil and I got to interview on stage the CEO of Neon, Pedro Conrade, who has also been acquisitive. And when he talked about the lessons learned he focuses a lot on the, I guess, the integration, right? What's important to kind of master a, a good integration when bringing in a new team? Yeah, I think the alignment up front is very important. And we did some acquisitions at SoFi as well. And, you know, the people part of it is a, it generally got to be the most important. Depends on, you know, what you're buying and whether you're buying it for the people or the business or the product. But Regardless, the people have to make it work. And I think identifying both on your side and the target side, you know, who are the people that feel responsible for making this work is very critical because otherwise, if, you know, like anything, if there's no owner, once the deal's done and Corp Dev and M&A go away, who's making sure this works? And I think that's the biggest thing is finding someone who feels accountable and really a deal champion on the business side that really wants it and is going to make it work. And that's why acquires are typically more successful, right? Because it's like, I mean, they're not always successful, but there it's pretty obvious. I'm a hiring manager. I have needs. This brings me 10 people at once versus having to go find them. They all work together. We've got a project for them. You know, that's lower risk, right? And you, it's very easy to point to who's responsible typically. Once you start getting a product, well, how does that, you know, how does that layer in, especially because in smaller companies, very few of whom have GMs, the founder there is typically used to being the GM. And so like, it's just a more, it's a more complicated process. Let's talk about your expansion strategy towards global companies, global founders, right? You're a US company undoubtedly, but you've clearly identified there's a need. You know, how do you describe a global company? Yeah, I think it's post-COVID rise of remote and hybrid work, you definitely have a fit. And also with the rise of interest rates, right, and just capital being more expensive, you have more of a global talent pool, which tends to be less expensive than the US, right? Especially, you know, 
USSF Bay Area is going to be the most expensive talent pool in the world. And so you have a bunch of companies that are increasingly cost sensitive, but also aware that hybrid work can be successful. I'm not, this isn't advocating or not advocating for it. It's just clearly it's working for some people. And therefore, you know, hiring in a geography that's not just outside of California, but outside of the United States is more feasible and seems more approachable than it ever did. And so it's happening a lot. And as a result, companies are looking for financial services products to bring the employee experience of those non-US employees to parity with the US experience, right? If they if you're if the default assumption is that everybody in the company gets $200 a month of a work from home meal stipend, people in Canada and in the United Kingdom are going to expect that as well. Right. And so the less you have to make things different, the more the whole concept works. And I think Brex has dedicated a ton of resources to making that work, whether it be reimbursements in local currencies, cards shipped and issued to local countries, the ability to pay your bill in a for a foreign entity in the foreign currency. And so just making it feel much more, excuse me, much more like one system has been a big piece of Brex. It definitely sounds like the way you expand is by following your customers and then following their needs. So what are some of those needs that you're seeing right now that you would like to address going forward? Yeah, I think that, so of course, we already talked about global, you know, we talked about expense management. I think from an AI perspective, your average CFO and finance team is looking at this trend and saying, okay, you know, clearly there's something going on in AI and we need a strategy, excuse me, we need a strategy uh, internally. And that strategy is either going to come from, that's either going to be a headcount and employment strategy, that's going to be a vendor strategy. And so I think Brex is thinking a lot about, you know, how do we deliver an offering that leverages generative AI for companies that, and for CFOs in particular, that are looking, you know, their boards and their investors and their bosses are asking, well, what are we doing in the finance world to leverage all this emerging AI technology, right? I think that's a very normal question that a CFO of a larger company would be asking or be asked. And therefore, you know, Brex is thinking a lot about that as well. So on, on this topic, do you think most companies are going to be better off just partnering with someone like OpenAI or any of those companies, or you think companies should actually think of building from within? I think sticking with the CFO example, I think CFOs are going to need to look at vendors that are delivering AI technology and features and use cases that increase efficiency. I think that in general for companies that are putting AI into their own products, right? Rather than the vendor perspective, more on the product side. I would say your average company is going to gain more by working with an existing provider. It's sort of similar to cloud, right? Like, yes, there there are some companies, for example, Snapchat, right? That, that, that they don't, I believe Snapchat for a while had their own cloud infrastructure, right? One of our competitors, Expensify, for example, I think hosts everything on-prem. You know, that's an option. But in general... The reason the rise of 
AWS, Google Cloud, and Microsoft Azure sort of indicates that a lot of people are finding value in using those platforms. I think AI is similar. So of course it's early, but it would strike me as odd for a you know, run-at-the-mill SaaS company to be trying to build kind of their own models. I think it would be more standard to either look at one of the existing companies like you mentioned or an open source and then sort of obviously training that model and modifying it with their own data. So kind of still, I, I think about it similar to, to cloud. So before I let you go, Michael, I have heard that you are very passionate about training people and promoting people from within and kind of training talent and being a mentor. Why is that? And tell us maybe some of the lessons you've learned on this specifically. Yeah, I think that, well, I had a really special experience at SOFA. I was promoted six times. And I remember when I became the VP of finance, you know, it was probably 2015. And I was like, wow, you know, I've made it. Like, this is so cool. And I thought like, wow, I was you know, so fortunate to come so far. I found this opportunity, but also like behind every promotion, especially an internal promotion, there's, you know, the promoting manager. And what I realized is that person that's doing that, they're actually giving some of them to you because the easiest thing and the least risk thing is to hire somebody that's already done it and say, oh, we're just going to get someone who's done it before. I'll just talk to recruiting. But it's harder when you're sort of putting yourself on the line to train someone internally and say, well, I know this person can do it, even though they haven't done it before. And I'm going to actually back them and I'm going to make my day worse because not only am I going to have to spend time training them and teaching them, but if inevitably they make a mistake, which they always will, my boss is going to come down on me and say, we should have gone external, right? And so I was grateful to have that opportunity a couple of different times. And then I thought, you know, why would I not offer this to other people that want to work really hard and want to have special outcomes and want to come and work in a high growth environment because those opportunities are there. So I think it was for me, I mean, I guess you could use the term paying it forward, but it's just, I don't know. It's just always been, I really believe in the long run, it's paying it forward, but you also just, you're going to engender more loyalty, more hard work, more fun. You're going to have a lot more fun also, which does matter if you do that, because you just kind of have a set of people you've been working with and growing together. And that's been a huge part of Rex for me. And I'm really fortunate to have been able to do that, right? You can't do that at a company that's not successful because there's no opportunity. So I feel really lucky to have had that. Well, Michael, amazing chat. And then thanks for joining us. Really, really good stuff. And you know, we're going to continue following Brex very closely. Thank you, Miguel. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this great episode with Michael, CEO of Brex. If you want more interviews, make sure to subscribe, follow, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever you get your shows. It helps and truly means a lot. And if you have any suggestions or thoughts about the show, just drop me a line on Twitter or LinkedIn. Signing off till next week, I'm your host, Miguel Armaza.